Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Hello, everybody. This is Turner Sanderson. I'm a part of Light Bears Starkville. Super glad to have y'all here. So today we have Andrew Brill with us. Hey, Turner. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Today we're going to discuss Acts. I know in the past we've covered some other New Testament books, but today just start us off with Acts. Last time you said that Luke and Acts connect. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So last time when we talked about the book of Luke, uh, I mean, I don't remember the exact words, but basically said something like Luke, the the, the author Luke wrote two books, Luke and Acts. Uh, and that's something that um, as you read through the New Testament, you, you kind of stumble across, but you have to, you have to be aware of it. So uh, the first, I mean, how do we know this? Well, the first verse of Acts Acts 1.1 says, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he says, there was a first account. Well, what's the first account? Well, that sends you back to the opening verse of Luke, where in Luke 1.1, it says, inasmuch as as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, you know, and then he kind of skims down, he says, I've investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So, uh, whoever, first of all, whoever this is that's writing uh, is writing two accounts to someone named Theophilus. So Luke is the first account, Acts is the second account. Uh, and then, now, none of the manuscripts we found were signed Luke. You know, uh, that's not how they did publishing and writing in those days. Uh, so you kind of, you read context clues, and, and we talked about this last time where, where we figured out uh, it was someone who knows Greek really well. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a Gentile, an educated Gentile, an associate of Paul. So that, you know, the kind of, we know it's that category based on how they write. Well, that that group of people is not that big. Uh, and so there's a select number of people that it could be. And the early church consistently said Luke, who was a physician who's mentioned by name in Colossians. And so uh, we just don't really have any reason to doubt uh, what the early church father said. Uh, and so we think it's this person named Luke. Which is so the book of Luke is named after him. Acts is in a sense the sequel. Uh, a lot of times it's it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer in terms of uh, yes, the apostles are the prime figure. It's really the Holy Spirit who is the one doing the acts through the apostles and through the church. And so, um, but but really, it's that it's it's the unifying themes between Luke and Acts that 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 is really evident. And and I, and I love noticing and, and talking about which is. Things like prayer. Prayer is a big theme in Luke, more so than in the the other Synoptic Gospels. It's a big theme in Acts. Uh, Rejoicing. Rejoicing is a big theme in Luke, also in Acts. The Holy Spirit uh, is a um, prominent figure in Luke, even more so than in Matthew and Mark. We talked about that. Uh, He shows up in a huge way in Acts. Um, Gentiles. Uh, we talked about Gentiles being big in Luke, that, that part of what Luke wants to show in the book of Luke is that Jesus came to save all, not simply Jews. It's not like the other Gospels disagreed with that, but just Luke kind of shines a spotlight on it. What's the story of Acts? It's about the Gospel reaching Gentiles. So you can kind of go down the list, care for outcasts, uh, for the for the disadvantage of society. It shows up in both. So you kind of get the idea. Um, there's the Clearly, it, 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 it ties both books together just from what it says, but also the themes as well. It's the same themes. And why that's so significant is it's saying the work of the church is the work of Jesus. It is the continuing work of Jesus 
Why is that? It's because the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, is active in the church. And so just as Jesus said, I go back to the Father and I'm going to send the Spirit to you, that's actually in John. Well, what we see is the Holy Spirit comes in Acts and continues the work of Jesus. Yeah, there definitely seems like there's a lot of connection between Luke and Acts. Uh, and along those same lines, I know you've mentioned a little bit of it, but um, can you continue to tell us more about the structure of Acts? Yeah, uh, th- there's, um, I mean, and let's just say Luke's a really good writer. I mean, a lot of people have looked at this and said, wow, there's, there's some great structure and themes here. Um, you know, at its core, the, the structure of Luke is let's look at the expansion, the spread of the gospel. So Acts 1.8, uh, one of the, the first verses, obviously, in Acts, uh, it's, a, it's a familiar one in, in missions language. And it says, it's where Jesus says that, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So one of the ways to, to structure Acts is simply to, to look at that that structure. Um, what happens? Well, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and they receive power. Then they preach in Jerusalem. Then after that, they preach in Judea, which is essentially the, the political region, the state or the province that Jerusalem's in. Then um, it expands to Samaria. The gospel and the church expands to Samaria. Then the the gospel spreads it beyond that. And so kind of the second half of Acts is the gospel going to essentially the remotest parts of the world. It goes to to Rome, to Ephesus, to Athens, all of these different places. And so we watch the gospel spread forward. And so that structure of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, that's that's a, that's one way to, to structure Acts. Other ways you could do it, and other people have done, is um, there's essentially two main characters in Acts. Uh, Peter uh, and Paul, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he's really the dominant figure for Acts 1 through 12. And then uh, 13 through 28, the second, basically the second half of the book, Paul, uh, who's initially called Saul, but he changes his name. Paul is the dominant figure. So kind of first half Peter, second half Paul. Um, so there's a couple of different ways to, uh, a couple of different ways to structure it. The way, um, you know, one other way, and this is a way that I, I have done when I've talked about it before is um, really, if you think the, the first couple chapters of Acts is about um, the departure of Jesus and, it's, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of setting the stage. Then what you have is chapters three through eight. It's kind of the firsts, first things of the church. So first deacons, first persecution, those sorts of things, first miracles, those sorts of things. Then chapters nine through 20, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Um, and then 21 to 28 is Paul's arrest and, and trial. So there's, I mean, you asked me, how do we structure Acts? And I gave you like seven different ways to do it, okay? So plain and simple, probably the easiest way to do it is to say Peter and then Paul, but there's other ways you could look at it. Okay. In your own experience, has there been a certain way of uh, structuring it in your mind as you read that helps you add context to what you're reading? Yeah, I think that um, I think that I would probably do that um, first half Peter, second half Paul, but within that, you're kind of, you're reminded that Peter is, primarily focused on the Jews, even though Acts 10, he's the one who um, receives the the vision from God that says, um, basically, the Gentiles also are, are uh, recipients of the gospel. Okay, so, and, and in the same way, Paul is primarily to the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus says he's, he, Paul is his chosen instrument um, to, to bring the message to the Gentiles. And yet, Paul does some with the Jews as well. So, 
you know, it, it, there's a little back and forth, but primarily you, I, I structure it with Peter, primarily focused to Jews. That's the first part. Paul, primarily focused to Gentiles. That's the second part. Yeah. Good. Um, so I know there's a lot of big themes uh, in Acts, but probably one of the most dominant themes uh, is the sending of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. Um, can you can you talk with us about that some? Um, yeah, that's so, you know, I think that, if we, you know, again, we kind of set the stage there. Jesus is in Acts chapter one. He's on the earth after resurrection. And he says to his disciples, he says, uh, this is the verse I quoted earlier, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay? And he says, basically, wait. He says, I'm going to go back to heaven. You wait. He doesn't tell them how long they're going to have to wait. So, I mean, imagine the apostles in this situation. I mean, are they waiting days, hours, years? I mean, they, they don't, they don't know. Um, which is, you know, honestly, it's a similar situation to w- what we find ourselves in a lot of times. Um, but what Jesus has said is he said, wait. And so they are the apostles, and it says that there's a, a group of, of 120, uh, so Jesus followers, uh, who are in a sense waiting. And they're in a, a place that's called an upper room. Obviously, we don't know exactly where this is. but um, And then it says the day of Pentecost comes. And so, you know, to answer the question of how long they waited. Well, Jesus, after his resurrection, was on the earth teaching for 40 days. We don't know exactly what those days look like, but 40 days. Then he ascends, and then it's another 10 days before uh, the day of Pentecost. And so they wait 10 days. I mean, that's a week and a half. I mean, imagine if Jesus says, I want you to wait. I'm not telling you how long you're going to have to wait, but the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. As far as we know, they don't know what that's going to entail. What does that mean for the Holy Spirit to come on us? We don't know when. It's 10 days, uh, and then they're sitting around the upper room at the day of Pentecost, which is a, it's a, a Jewish festival. It's referenced in Leviticus 23. Traditionally, um, it's when it's, it's understood that that's when God gave the law, which you know is interesting to kind of parallel God gave the law at Pentecost, and now he's giving the Spirit at Pentecost. Um, but they're, they're waiting. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 2 in Acts says, uh, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And that word wind sometimes is translated breath, sometimes it's translated spirit throughout scripture, but a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So everybody's there sitting in a room, giant wind comes in, uh, as the wind comes in, tongues of fire, um, so images of fire appear on their heads. I shouldn't say just images. I mean, as far as we know, it's actual fire, but it's not like they're being burned by it. Uh, and the Spirit comes on them. So um, the Spirit comes on them, and they begin speaking in other tongues, which that word usually translate a lot of times translated languages. So they're speaking in other languages, which that, I mean, that even that is really fascinating because, um, you know, you go back to, why do we have different languages in the first place? Well, that goes back to Genesis 11, where at the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke in one language, but then because of sin, uh, God confused the languages and split them up. So there's a level on which the reason we have different languages in the first place is because of sin. Now what is God doing in this moment? He is overcoming the effects of the sin of man and unifying once again. And then we look forward to Revelation 7, where it says that every tongue and tribe and nation is going to worship. Well, what does he do there? He takes, I mean, the fact that we have languages is a result of sin. 
And then what does he do? He takes that result of sin and works it to his glory because he brings praise for men. And so just this powerful moment of what man had brought about in sin, God restores and then uses even the results for his glory. Uh, And so, but in this moment, they're speaking in other languages and other people, there's a crowd that hears this and is bewildered. Scripture says that they're confused. And so other nations are hearing. So they basically are saying, okay, what's going on? Uh, And Peter, as, as kind of the representative of the disciples, stands up and says, Okay, what you're seeing here is fulfilling what was happening in uh, the prophet Joel, where Joel talks about the, the the Holy Spirit coming. And so essentially what he is coming, what he's saying, what Peter's saying is he's saying that the age of the Spirit has begun, that we've entered into the age of the Holy Spirit. And, and what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, that's kind of what the rest of Acts is going gonna, is gonna to flesh out, that um, at the core, the Holy Spirit is going to glorify Jesus. That's what John says, that the Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. And some of the ways that he's going to do that is he's going to cause people to be born again. That's John 3. He's going to um, empower healing and miracles. He's going to plant churches. I mean, he's going to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. All of the fruit of the Spirit uh, that is what the Holy Spirit does, and so, um, so, so when we say the age of the Spirit, that's what we have. That's what we've brought about is a season of this sort of thing. And so Peter continues. He gets up and he preaches this sermon. It lasts about thirty verses. Uh, it's kind of meant to be kind of a model sermon. Uh, it's the first sermon preached in Acts, and it's first of about ten that pretty much all begin with building some rapport with the listeners and then drive home the message. And the message is always going to be one of crucifixion and resurrection over and over again, the message of crucifixion and resurrection. And so what Peter does here is he cites the Old Testament um, and refers to the Old Testament and then basically says, okay, Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament and you, um, you have in essence killed the Messiah. So he's looking at these people and saying, you have killed the Messiah. And so they look at him and they say, what, what do we do? And again, this is 50 days earlier. This is a month and a half ago. So essentially, Peter's looking at them saying, the one who'd been prophesied for centuries, you killed him seven weeks ago. And they say, what do we do? I mean, their, their natural understanding of that is going to be, God's going to punish us. I mean, of course they would think that. God's going to punish us. We killed his Messiah uh, seven weeks ago. We killed the Messiah, and, and Peter, they, so they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise isn't just for you, it's for your children. And so, I mean, what glory there that they killed the Messiah, and Peter says, yes, but God actually was the one who ordained that in the first place, and it brings about a gift for you. So what should have brought you suffering and punishment actually is the source of an incredible gift. And so at that moment, 3,000 come to faith and the church is born and, and we kind of, it, it's go time at that point. I mean, that sets the rest of the, the vax in motion. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You've mentioned twice how uh, something that, um, I would say the result of sin, when the changing of languages in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babylon, um, how God ended up changing that for His glory. And when the Holy Spirit came, they were able to speak in tongues. And then you just mentioned about, um, you know, they killed Jesus, uh, our Savior, our Redeemer, 
um, but yet he turned that around for his glory as well, uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so those are two great points. Um, I mean, imagine that. Just yeah. You killed the Messiah. I mean, I know I said that earlier, but just kind of it, it just really strikes home to me. I mean, they had a God that they worshipped, and they killed that God's most beloved possession, his son. They killed him. And they would have to assume we will be utterly destroyed individually, corporately as a nation. God should wipe us out. That's where their minds should go. And instead, Peter says, no, this was the preordained gift. And I mean, it's just unbelievable that God would do that. Yeah, it is. Amazing, amazing grace. Um, So with what you said in mind, I have two questions for you. Uh, The first one is, on the top of your mind, can you tell me, uh, tell us other parts in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is mentioned? I know on top of my mind, I think of John 14, um, chapter 14, John chapter 16. Um, is there any Scripture that comes to mind that that adds context to what the Holy Spirit means to us today? Yeah, and we really get into this in our theology and practice class. We have a whole uh, session on the Holy Spirit. Um, but in particular, you know, if you, as you think about the, the Trinity, um, you can kind of go to creation itself as a, as a launching point. Um, God ordains creation, Jesus, God the Son. Um, so God the Father ordains creation, God the Son, uh, in, in a sense, enacts creation, um, brings it about. Uh, and then God the Spirit, uh, it says in Genesis 1, that the Spirit is hovering over the waters and hovering in terms of uh, enlivening, giving life. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit is present, giving life, but in a sense, the Spirit comes on people for a season, gives gifts, um, and and then seems to leave. I mean, we see that in Judges with someone like Samson. We see it with Saul, that the Spirit is on him and leave. And that's why you see, I think, David in the Psalms say, Psalm 51, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And so the kind of that's the mindset. Well, then you get to, you know, so, so the Spirit appears here and there. But then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus shows up, and it's as if the Spirit is is everywhere. Um, as soon as Jesus shows up, the spirit is everywhere. And so Jesus acts in the power of the spirit. Um, the spirit, um, is on John the Baptist from birth, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, um, prophesies in the spirit. Jesus, at one point, the disciples do healing and they come back and it says that Jesus rejoices in the Holy spirit. And so all these sorts of things when Jesus is on the scene and then you're right, John 14, John 16, Jesus talks about, he's going to return to heaven. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to remind you of everything that I taught. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so the Spirit is going to come and and point back to Jesus uh, is is the idea. And so then what, what happens after that? I mean, that's why we talk about that that now the age of the Spirit has come. And so, but all along it's been this enlivening. And so um, think about it with salvation. The God, the Father ordains salvation. Jesus brings it about, enacts it. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit enlivens it. And so that's why John 3, Jesus says that men must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives birth, gives life. And then in our sanctification, it is the Holy Spirit who gives life to our moral bodies, according to Romans 8. So it's this idea that the Spirit is constantly giving us life. Good. Um, <clears throat> another question. You've backing up a little bit earlier. You you know told us some of the background uh, context of Acts, uh, and you mentioned that the first part of Acts is folk, Peter is the the main character, and then the second part is Paul. 
Um, so in the first part, in chapter two, for instance, when the Holy Spirit comes, where is Paul at in all of this? Yeah, I mean, he's not there. As far as we know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a crowd. We don't necessarily know, but he's kind of hovering around the wings a little bit. I mean, he shows up in for the first time in Acts 7 when uh, Stephen, one of the early deacons in the church, is uh is martyred. Uh, it says that Saul was there giving approval. And so that's an act seven. So, so Saul is kind of, and, and you said, Paul, I'm saying Saul, we'll get to that. Um, but you know, Saul, uh, is giving approval to this. So he's kind of leading the persecution of the other, uh, or of the Christians. He is a Jew. Um, he is, uh, and, and later books, of the Bible of Philippians will tell us this. He's a, he's a Pharisee. So he is a He's a leader within the Jewish com- community, a, a zealot for religious um, piety, and uh, and he is giving approval because he, he he's giving approval to the persecution because he is against this. I mean, what he would say is Jesus cult, uh, and so he's behind the scenes. And then, but that's so that's Acts seven, Acts eight. But then, what happens in Acts nine is uh, that Paul is traveling, going to Damascus in order to capture put put Christians in prison and Jesus appears to him on the road, blinds him. And then when he arrives in Damascus, uh, another man, a man named Ananias, who's a, who's a Christ follower appears to Paul and says, basically, Hey, let me, you know, in essence, let me share the gospel with you. So on the road, Jesus appeared and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then this man, Ananias shares the gospel with him. Um, Paul is converted. Uh, and then Paul becomes, um, Scripture says God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles, and so that's kind of what what happens after that. But what's interesting there is he's called he's called an instrument. Um, well, an instrument doesn't, you know, in a sense, doesn't choose what they do. They are they are they are utilized for a purpose, and so God clearly identifies Paul for a purpose um, and uses him to reach the Gentiles, and he's called to to suffer. Um, so he's an instrument to spread the message and to suffer. So beginning in Damascus, he begins to preach to Gentiles. Um, and, and, and that's what happens throughout the rest of Acts, but also through the rest of the New Testament. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says, you know, God who said light shall shine in the darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts. And so he says, he says, I was spiritually blind and God shone light in my heart to make me spiritually uh, able to see. And he does that at a moment where he makes Paul physically blind. And so there's kind of a reversal there that happens. Uh, and and that's chapter nine. And so from there on, Paul's this leading figure in the book. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned chapter nine, uh, moving forward some. Um, in, chap- in Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, we see a tension between the Jews and Gentiles pop up. And we've seen this pop up uh, in different areas of the New Testament uh, but here it seems uh, like a pretty dramatic spot. Can you tell us what's taking place? Yeah, so so Acts 9, Paul gets converted. Acts 10, uh, Jesus appears to Peter and basically says, uh, Gentiles are part of the kingdom as well. Preach the gospel to Gentiles. So 9, 10, it's, it's clear kind of, you know, I mean, I'm, you're a baseball guy. I'm picturing, you know, kind of, the, the, the pitcher's warming up in the bullpen. So this idea of reaching the Gentiles is kind of warming up. We see it in Acts 9, Acts 10, and then you kind of keep rolling Acts 11, 12, 13, 14. The gospel is expanding more and more. Paul Paul leaves the area, goes out, and he's planting churches. And as he's planting churches, news is getting back to, to Jewish believers saying, hey, there's all these Gentiles who are coming to faith, and it's kind of this, uh, are we comfortable with this? Uh, we're excited, and yet we're concerned 
that the faith is being watered down, which makes sense. I mean, think about it. When the church expands, um, people are going to going to going to accept it, and it, culturally it may look a little different. And so we have to kind of look at it and say, are are we watering down the message? What's what's cultural? What's not? And so they're kind of dealing with these questions. Um, and, and and at its core, some of it is, are Christians going to be Jews? In a sense, do you have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Um, and that that's this core question. And so in Acts 15, what happens is Jews have come from Judea. Um, again, that's the province where Jerusalem's in. So they've come from Judea to Antioch, where Paul is, and they've said, you new Christians, you have to be circumcised. You have to be a Jew first, so be circumcised. That's part of becoming a Christian. And Paul is saying, no way. We're not, we're not doing that. We're not taking on the law again. The law is, has never saved anyone. Being circumcised is a symbol of saying, I'm going to try and follow the law. So kind of these two camps form. One is the Pharisee who says the door to Jesus is Judaism. Okay, And Paul who says circumcision is the door to the obligation of the law. And, and we don't actually add anything to the gospel. And so... Um, so that's these two camps. And so Paul returns back to Jerusalem, and they have essentially a council. So um, it's a council to talk about these things. And it's absolutely fascinating how this plays out. Um, kind of all the early leaders of the church are there. Paul speaks, Peter speaks, James, the brother of Jesus, and the author of uh, the book of James. Surprise, surprise. I, I stumbled for a minute there thinking, which book did he author? It's James. Um, so all these leaders stand up and say, here's, here's kind of my perspective on it. And, and I think what's, what's fascinating on this is this is a really big conversation. This is a really big and really significant potential disagreement. Why didn't Jesus ever answer this? In three years on earth, why didn't Jesus ever say, hey, guys, down the road, there's going to be this question about circumcision. You don't have to be circumcised to be a believer. Why didn't Jesus ever tell him that? I mean, it's a fascinating question. It's going to divide people. Why didn't Jesus just tell them? Well, I mean, on some level, I don't know, but I think that we have to recognize that Jesus felt like it was bigger for them to sit as a group, as a council with the Holy Spirit, rather than simply to tell them everything to do. Um, and, and, and so in Acts 15, chapter 8, they talk about this for a while, but in verse 28, they get to the point at the end and they say, um, well, again, context, they come to an agreement and they write a letter to the new believers. And what, it, what they say in the letter is, this is verse 28, it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these, these essentials. And it says, you know, abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from, from fornication. But you know, I want to go back to this phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Again, it's this huge question, and they come up with, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good. I mean, where's the absolute confidence? Shouldn't they have that? And yet, I think what they're doing there is they're modeling something about how what it's like to follow the Holy Spirit. Well, it means that you you talk with your brothers. It means you submit yourself to the the collective authority. Um, it, it means that, I mean, you know, in theory, there's someone there who said, hey, I think they should be circumcised. At the end of this, they should have said, you know what, I, I tended to lean this way, but now I see based on the collective agreement 
that what the Holy Spirit is saying is they don't need to be circumcised. And so I just, I mean, again, I mean, it's just kind of fascinating to me how this plays out and that in following the Lord, there's not always absolute clarity. Part of the clarity we get is through the process of seeking out the church, seeking out those who love the Lord, who are following his word and trusting that the Holy Spirit is present in his people. Uh, and so that that's kind of what happens there. And in and, and big picture, where do we go from here? Well, big picture where we go is we say, here's why this was such a big deal. It says that from now on, people don't actually have to become Jews to be, uh, to be Christians. And that allows for uh, you know, a huge amount of growth, but also what does it do? It saves the unity of the church. So you had two distinct groups and the church unifies around an issue. Okay. So it saves the unity of the church. It pushes them towards evangelism. Um, and it, it, it encourages new believers. All of these are good things. And, and finally, and this is all through the new Testament. It, it, clarifies the gospel of grace, that it is not something that we do. It's nothing we bring to the table. Isaiah in the Old Testament says our good deeds are like filthy rags. In all of this, the the grace of God is what saves. Ephesians 2, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Um, and so it is our faith that brings it about, but it's grace that actually saves us. And it's not anything that we do. And that is clarified, which I mean, is is huge because it shows that that salvation is from God from first to last. Um, so, uh, one more big question. Uh, see if you can give us some wisdom and insight on it. Uh, I know that um, some uh, the big themes we've already talked about. One is the Holy Spirit. Uh, another big theme that people looked acts is to see the structure of the church. Uh, so, uh, my question to you is. Uh, should today's church look like the book of Acts? What do you think? Short answer, yes. Uh, I think that that's the first church. And in a sense, we follow that model. Um, I mean, that's that was the groundwork for us to follow today, the community of the things they valued, of prayer, of fellowship, um, how they depended upon the Holy Spirit, as we've been talking about, uh, the sharing of the gospel. Um, so, yes. I think that's a great point. I think we are supposed to look at a lot of acts and say, there's something here we're supposed to model ourselves after. I think you trust the Lord's wisdom in giving us the word there. And so I think there's very much a sense in which you say, yes, um, we see a people in acts who are continually devoted to the Lord and a people devoted to Jesus will go where he wants them to go, do what he wants them to do because he's directing them. I mean, scripture is going to say he's the head of the church. So, it is supposed to be a picture of our church in that Jesus is, is our head. So the local church that you're part of, I know you're part of Redeemer in Starkville, I'm part of Christ Community in Fayetteville, whatever local church you're part of, Jesus is the head of that church and our church is supposed to go where he leads. Okay. So yes, the flip of that is, is I think we do have to recognize that Acts is written, written descriptively, not prescriptively. So it's, it's a historical narrative. Um, and so, you know, I think that you you walk through those through that carefully and say, I, and, and part of the reason I say this is, let's say you're at a church where, um, you know, people aren't being raised from the dead. Does that mean you are doing something wrong as a church? Well, I would say no. There are churches in Acts where that happens. We have Tabitha who is raised from the dead, but that is meant to be descriptive of what is happening, not prescriptive. Uh, and those are, you know, 
heady theological conversations that happen about what, um, you know, what is the work of the Spirit in the church. And so I think it's worth getting into that. And do miracles exist? And I, I think it's certainly um, possible. And, and we hope and we pray that the Lord does do miracles in the church. And yet we don't say, hey, because it happened in, you know, the city of Ephesus in 42 AD, it necessarily needs to happen in Des Moines, Iowa in 2019, or in London, England in 2019, or in Nairobi, Kenya 2019. We, we don't look at every individual church and say everything that happens in Acts needs to happen here. We say we need to be a people who are continually devoted to Jesus. We'll trust where he leads us. Yeah, we're good. Uh, it's been great to have you. So thankful uh, that we could sit and, and talk about Acts. Um, so um, great to have you once again. Uh, for the listeners, I hope you have a great day wherever you're at, and we will be back with another topic later. Thanks, Turner. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Mm-hmm.